In the United States, systems of licensing, accreditation, credentialing, certification, and reporting are designed to reduce the risk of avoidable medical errors. State laws ensure that practitioners meet standards of education, training, and professional conduct, and licensed facilities must comply with expansive organizational and procedural requirements. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Nathan Cortez, a professor and co-director of the Sci Center for Law, Science, and Innovation at the Southern Methodist University Dedman School of Law. As part of the journal series on the fundamentals of health law, Professor Cortez has written a perspective article about licensure and quality regulation in the United States. Professor Cortez, let's start with regulation of individual practitioners. What laws govern who can practice medicine and how much variation is there at the state level? Well, state law generally governs who can practice medicine, state licensing boards, including state boards of medicine, state boards of medical practice. They're the gatekeepers in each state, and they not only regulate who meets the educational criteria for getting a license, but also continuing medical education and scope of practice laws, meaning who is allowed to do surgery, to prescribe medications and whatnot, which separates physicians from other health professionals, such as nurse practitioners, nurses, physicians, assistants, et cetera, et cetera. So what role does physician certification play in promoting safety and quality, and how does that differ from licensing? So certification is kind of a more specialized endeavor. Licensing basically allows you to practice medicine, and a lot of state laws do address different specialties, but certification is kind of a layer on top of licensing where specialty medical boards will certify that you meet their special standards. And so the American College of Surgeons, American College of Physicians, and countless specialty boards provide this extra certification, which can sometimes tie into licensing by state law, but it's important for uh, credentialing and a number of other hurdles physicians who practice in hospital settings have to meet. As you'll see, a lot of these things tie together and rely on each other but certification is kind of an extra layer on top of physician licensing that governs your credentials, your qualifications. Basically, a specialty board is certifying that you meet their specific standards. And then moving to regulation of facilities, you say in your perspective article that during the first half of the 20th century, the quality of care in hospitals was generally overseen by the practitioners. How has oversight shifted over time? Oversight has shifted by moving outward outward and towards gathering kind of better measures of quality. And so physicians are and were the experts in medical care, and they often oversaw the quality of medical care. And to some extent, that hasn't changed. But at the same time, hospitals have countless reporting requirements, and they're subject to countless different metrics. And so I think the locus of quality oversight for facilities has shifted away from individual practitioners and oversight boards and hospitals towards more institutional responsibilities owed to state licensors and reimbursement schemes like Medicare and private insurance requirements. So what are the primary state and federal laws that govern medical practice at this facility level? It's all kind of this intertangled web where you have 
state licensing requirements for hospitals that require practitioners who have admitting and practicing privileges to meet their individual state licensing requirements. And so facility quality very much depends on regulation of individual practitioners. So this happens at the state level. At the federal level, the Medicare program imposes pretty extensive conditions of participation, which themselves kind of rely on accreditation standards by the Joint Commission, which themselves sometimes refer back to individual credentialing and licensing oversight. So again, the system is kind of like a teepee where all the different branches lean on each other to create this edifice or structure. And if one part fails, that's where you see failures in the quality of care. So looking at Medicare as an example, what are the implications of relying on payment programs to regulate quality? Well, it's a fascinating question because for so long, our quality oversight was aimed at regulating the floor, the bare minimum practice standards, rather than encouraging quality to focus on the ceiling or providing the best possible care. And so the idea behind reimbursement incentives is to really encourage the highest quality care. You still have some programs that are aimed at ensuring people and facilities meet the bare minimum. And so if you have high readmission rates or hospital infection rates, then that's focused on the floor and not the ceiling. But reimbursement incentives generally, particularly after the Affordable Care Act, really try to encourage facilities to improve the quality of care and focus on providing the best possible care and not just meeting minimum standards. The problem with reimbursement-based incentives is that measuring quality with any accuracy and in a comprehensive manner can be incredibly tricky. And this has always been a problem in quality regulation. How do we know what we're measuring and how do you measure high quality care? It's a very difficult task. And so these reimbursement incentives are part of a larger scheme, but in and of themselves can't solve the problem of substandard care. So finally, You say in your article that most medical errors still derive from a combination of individual and system factors. So what additional regulatory or legal measures do you see that could further reduce the risk of avoidable errors? That's a really, really good question and a really tricky one. And legal scholars and scholars of healthcare quality and and medical errors have been grappling with this for decades. And looking back over the past 20 years, the 2000 IOM report to Air is Human really shifted our focus to systems level factors that impact the quality of care and contribute to medical errors. And in some ways, I think our focus really probably swung the pendulum so far in that direction that we began to take for granted that individual errors can still contribute significantly. And so you tend to see the pendulum swing from one extreme to the other. And for lawmakers and policymakers, it's really tricky to try to get the right balance. But in some cases, clearly it's an individual mistake. And in some cases, clearly the main contributor is a systems level complication. But in the vast majority of cases, you see a combination of factors. And the trick for policymakers, 
and lawmakers is to try to create the right groove, the right mix of incentives, both positive and negative, to achieve high-level care, high-quality care. And you see states tinkering with incentives. A lot of the interventions are coming not from law, but from payers, reimbursement incentives, metrics, reporting requirements, under the idea that you can name and shame facilities or practitioners who provide low-quality care. The National Practitioner Data Bank, created back in 1986 federally, was created in part to achieve those ends, but they have varying levels of success. So it's a really, really tricky problem. I'm not sure there's a magic bullet that can hit at both contributors at the same time and dramatically reduce medical errors. So it's something that has been a long lasting problem. Thank you, Professor Cortez.